Hello, everybody. Welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host, Ricardo Lopes, and today, uh, Dr. Catherine Wilson is here for a second time. Uh, she was, until recently, Professor of Philosophy at the University of York in the UK, and she is now teaching part-time at the City University of New York, and she is also a writer. Uh, and uh, I, w I just wanted to make reference uh, reference to two of her books, Epicureanism at the Origins of Modernity and Epicureanism, a very short introduction, because uh, that is basically the topic we're going to focus on mostly today, Epicureanism as a philosophy, and basically also how it influenced uh, the development of modernity or modern philosophy. So, Dr. Wilson, thank you again for accepting the invitation and for coming on the show. It's nice to have a chance to talk to you again, Ricardo. So, thank you for the invitation. Okay. I will just mention that uh, you, you may not know this, but I have a third book on Epicureanism coming out. And uh, this one is called, this one is written for, um, it's a trade book, so it's meant to reach a broader audience though we can concentrate on academic things today. And uh, it's called, in uh, the US title will be How to Be an Epicurean. Mm -hmm. And the UK title, it has already appeared in the UK, is The Pleasure Principle. Mm -hmm. Not my choice, but uh, you go with what the publisher wants. So. <laughs> Yeah, that, that title is interesting, how to be an Epicurean, because it sounds like a provocation <laughs> in, in a sense to Massimo Pigliucci books, how to, how to be a stoic, right? <laughs> yes, exactly, right. I'm, I'm sure we'll get on later in, the, uh, later in your show to the question of the Stoics and the Epicureans. Yeah, 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 because there seems to be a some sort of rivalry there, right? So, okay, so let's start with this. Uh, where, what is Epicureanism? And perhaps where did it start exactly? Uh, who were its main founding figures, let's say, just to trace it back to its origins? Okay, good. Um, well, first, just a bit about um, Greek Greek normative philosophy in, in general. Um, as we all know, uh, Greek philosophers were, were really concerned with the question, how to live. And unlike modern self-help books about how to live, they really wanted to, to integrate their recommendations into a very broad and very grounded picture of how the universe worked, what people were like, what law and convention were really like. So um, in, in doing so, you often find them um, really challenging mainstream beliefs and um, telling people essentially the world is not at all the way you think it is. We're going to tell you how it really is. And based on that, um, we'll, we'll make suggestions for how to live a um, happy and ethical life. So the Epicureans do that in their particular way. Um, the the sources of Epicureanism are first Epicurus himself, third century BCE Greek philosopher, who had a kind of school or cult um, that he, uh, he gathered people together in his house, which was probably outside the city limits of Athens. 
And uh, there they talked and discussed and read and wrote and had meals together. So he's already taking a kind of outsider stance. He doesn't want to get involved in politics or law or the marketplace. Um, how exactly these people lived, what their source of income was, uh, I'm not too sure. Uh, there's probably a lot more to be found out about that. But um, uh, Epicurus died. Uh, his follower, his Roman follower in the first century BCE, had access to a lot of manuscripts of Epicurus that we have lost. Um, they were a lot of them were buried in the eruption of, uh, of Vesuvius, the volcano, in 78 BCE. But uh, Lucretius had them. And uh, based on these many, many writings of Epicurus, he wrote a Latin poem on the nature of things in which he develops uh, very poetically the main ideas of Epicurus. Mm -hmm. um, otherwise, what we have of Epicurus himself is uh, really pretty sketchy. Some uh, list of sayings, which are very interesting and very worth commenting on. Um, and uh, the manuscripts that are now being, um, some of them have been recovered from um, Herculaneum that was buried by the volcano and are actually being unrolled and transcribed. And scholars who are, have this amazing talent to do so are actually able to read these manuscripts, burnt up and destroyed and in fragments and actually try to figure out, um, despite gaps and missing words, what they say. So someday we may have more of Epicurus himself. Mm -hmm. That's very interesting. So uh, would you say that Epicureanism uh, could be classified as an early uh, form of materialism, in a sense? Because uh, I guess that's important uh, to put it as an influence for modernist phil ph philosophy and even the development of the scientific method, because uh, in modernism, I guess that we could say that most philosophers accept a materialist approach to the world and to existence, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the Epicureans uh, were monistic. There are no dualisms, um, no distinction between matter and spirit or the material world and the divine or um, lots of other uh, dualisms go away. They're materialist in, in that they, they thought that the only things that really exist, apart from what exists by convention or through perception, are atoms and void. So that kind of materialism is, of course, uh, quite different from the Marxist tradition of materialism. Uh, but there is a relationship because Marx and Engels were very keen students of philosophical materialism. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's very interesting because Epicureanism uh, back maybe in the 17th century, around the time where people started developing the scientific method, really clashed against the Christian cosmology and also Christian philosophy in a sense because people believed, for example, in a soul and they placed 
people, morally speaking, above other animals and they didn't think there was even some sort of biological continuity between them. And then uh, Epicure the, Epicurean, uh, the Epicureans are saying basically that all that exists is composed by the same sort of building blocks, the same sort of particles. And so, uh, in a sense, we, we are not special in comparison with animals and even with inanimate matter. And so, I, I guess that would be really controversial back then, right? <laughs> That's right. Well, the, um, most people, I suppose, believed, or at least were taught, there's always a distinction between what people are taught and what they actually believe. That um, the world, because it appears so orderly and regular, um, either it always existed, that's what the Aristotelian said, like we see it today, or it was created by a, a divine mind that had the power to um, create plants and animals, to form the earth, to create human beings and give them incorporeal souls. And in most traditions, the human soul is immortal. It um, uh, is either uh, revived with the body in the Christian tradition, or um, you come back as another animal or maybe as one of your descendants. Uh, but people have always had a very hard time believing that death is just the end and that the, uh, the particles of which your body is made just dissipate and get taken up and become other objects, perhaps other plants and animals and, and other people. So uh, for the Epicureans, since, since the gods or a god did not create the world, um, it was just a matter of over very long time periods, um, individual particles coming together, sticking together, uh, forming, forming assemblages that had some stability. And out of this, um, the world as we see it appeared. That's a little bit of an exaggeration because uh, they also seem to have, have thought of seeds of animals and plants as somehow existing maybe eternally in the earth, but then as springing out of the earth and developing into large animals, elephants, human beings, etc. Um, so sometimes atom seems to mean seed, and sometimes it seems to mean in their writings um, a particle that only has shape and size and is otherwise quite dead and and not inert because the atoms move themselves and interact. Um, so the important thing is more what they exclude minds, spirits, incorporeal agents, than exactly how they're thinking of, of the atom. Mm -hmm. But uh, that was a very interesting intuition that they had, because back then they didn't really have access to the intellectual tools that science provided us with, and even to the technological resources that we have nowadays in order to really understand 
ao da Microscopic World uh, e in, um, ao da Microscopic World uh, works uh, and how particles interact with one another and what they are really about. So, I mean, for someone uh, thousands of years ago to have that sort of intuition, <laughs> because even for people that's really counterintuitive and it's really understandable that for such a long time pe most people dismissed it as untrue or something like that because it really runs counter to our uh, I, I'm not sure if we could call them innate, but our intuitions, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, it wasn't until recently that people actually claimed to see, or at least visualize, atoms with uh, electron microscopes and, and devices like that. So it's a really fascinating story how from this um, completely a priori or um, observational approach, uh, this theory of, of atoms as the underlying and permanent constituents of the world developed uh, over all these centuries. So what the ancient Epicureans noticed was um, first that, that things, things wear away very gradually, steps and um, even, even uh, rocks and stones, things like that. Um, a ring wears away when you've uh, worn it for a long time, it becomes thinner. So they, they understood that there must be little bits of it disappearing all the time, even though we can't see it. They noticed that there were, um, uh, you, you notice an array of light coming in through the window, little dust particles dancing around. And they thought, well, atoms must be something like that, only even smaller because they're completely invisible. And the, uh, the more philosophic, the purely philosophical arguments they gave were that there must be something that is absolutely permanent out of which the universe can be built because everything that we see around us is destructible. Okay? Mm -hmm. I can smash this computer to bits, all buildings fall down, nothing lasts forever. So what is it that gives the universe its substance? It must be something too small to be seen that is so hard, they thought, that you could never uh, break it into or cut it into. One. Nature could never do that. So those must be the ultimate things. And they can't have any color because uh, colors change. Colors of macroscopic objects uh, change with the light, with the illumination. Um, if I were to grind this computer into a powder, all these colors that are there would disappear. Um, it would just be a heap of white powder or gray powder at the end of it. So colors somehow um, are appearances that have to do with the light and with conditions. And again, that's a bit of an oversimplification because mm -hmm. Epicurean theory of perception also involves um, colored films of single atoms being emitted from things and coming into right. our eyes. So that was the way they got around the problem of how does a purely physical material being like me mm -hmm. see objects, including colors. Mm -hmm. So um, based on their theory of perception, let's call it that way, did they think that 
what we saw and what we felt and what we heard and basically the information we got from our senses that it was mostly an illusion as we also know nowadays that is that it was a construction of reality and not reality itself um, yeah that's that's an important thought in in two ways um first they thought um lucretius says this explicitly that what we see is a kind of blurred version of all the, the individual atoms. So he compares perception to looking uh, across a long distance at a flock of sheep on the hillside, and you see one, one white object, where in fact there are lots of little individual sheep moving around with spaces in between them. So that's what atomic reality is like versus our perception of it. Um, but they also thought that, that um, much of the language we use refers to things that are purely conventional, that don't exist in nature. So uh, there, uh, Lucretius's examples are poverty and wealth, war and peace. All of these things uh, exist, kingship. Um, such things exist only because we believe them to exist and engage in practices that, um, that take them as real. But um, if they're just atoms moving around in a void, really war and peace are only the constructions we put on those arrangements as we perceive them. Mm -hmm. so, mm -hmm. so basically these abstractions that we have uh, are social conventions, ultimately. Um, yes, and uh, perceptions and practices. Mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. Right. And did they have uh, anything akin to uh, Darwinism or at least some intuitions that could resemble evolution by natural selection? I'm asking because, I mean, since they had these intuitions about everything, even animals and plants and people being composed by the same constitutive elements, that they could then turn into something similar to Darwinism or something like that. Did they have that or not? Yes, exactly. They... they um... They uh, anticipated part of Darwin's theory of natural selection because uh, they point out that um, you know, when they're imagining uh, all the atoms coming together and getting into configurations, they, they realize that some of these would be stable and some unstable, and that if an animal formed or appeared uh, that didn't have the right limbs and organs and habits to sustain itself, or to mate and produce offspring, uh, it would die out, its lineage would disappear. So the only animals that, and plants that we have around are the ones that were stable assemblages that had solved the problems of nutrition and maintenance and reproduction. So the only thing that they were really missing um, was uh, uh, Darwin's theory of variation. Mm -hmm. 
Yes, that bit about variation is very important because as far as I know, there were also some pre-Socratic philosophers that also had uh, some of the same intuitions in terms of uh, different animals transforming over time and changing form over time. But uh, th that bit about... Uh, that occurring due to variation, for example, uh, within the elements or the specimens that are part of the same species and then being selected over time to turn into new forms, new species. That was the bit that basically was missing from, the, uh, from those early philosophers and philosophies, yeah, right? Because um, um, certainly for the Epicureans, um, uh, the really impressive phenomenon was that uh, the species bred true, that peacocks always gave birth to peacocks and sheep to sheep. Um, whereas for people in, in later centuries, when they realized that the fossil record showed that there had been completely different animals and plants in former times, um, and uh, um, when it was realized, well, actually, you know, the, the ancients knew that you could transform animals by selective breeding because mm -hmm. they bred dogs and horses and, and other animals. Um, so they, they knew that transformations were possible, but they never thought in terms of one species becoming, giving rise to a completely different species. Um, whereas Darwin was trying to solve that problem exactly. And for that, he needed variation. So before we move on uh, to other topics of Epicureanist philosophy, um, let's perhaps now talk about uh, how Epicureanism influenced the early scientists back in the 17th century, the 18th century perhaps. I mean, uh, who were the first scientists that got in touch with ideas coming from Epicureanism? Uh, what ideas exactly and how were they influenced by them? Well, really, um, as soon as uh, Lucretius's poem became available in, in Europe, people really started to take uh, atomism quite seriously again. So some of the uh, earliest references, and sometimes they're to Democritus, who was also an, an atomist, a precursor of Epicurus and Lucretius. Um, some of the first references, some of the first favorable references you find are in Bacon and uh, in Descartes. Descartes keeps trying to assure the reader I am not an Epicurean, but uh, as you mentioned earlier, there's right, good reason not to do this in a Christian culture in which um, the church and the universities are essentially one, or, um, closely tied together at least. But uh, Descartes especially has a theory of, um, of corpuscles or particles. They're not exactly atoms because they're not separated by void for him. Mm -hmm. um, but for, for Bacon, the motivation is he wants to transmute substances. He wants to essentially turn lead into gold. And he realizes that because then you don't have to go overseas and you know, have sea sure. voyages and kill people and all that. <clears throat> you can just make gold um, by transforming base metal. But he realizes that 
alchemy has not succeeded in doing this. They don't know what they're doing. Um, but if you could somehow um, figure out how the particles of substance matter are arranged so as to make it have the qualities of gold versus lead, and you could somehow do something, heat it up or put it under pressure or something like that, you could actually change the configuration of substances to get the, the substance that you want or make new drugs. So for, for good practical reasons, you want to know what the atomic, we would say, structure underlying things is. And uh, Descartes has really similar motives. Uh, he wants to understand how the world works, but he also wants to produce new medicines. And um, other, other philosophers like uh, Robert Boyle, early chemist, um, are interested as well in, in um, the uses, the practical uses of chemistry. Mm -hmm. Uh, and were the Epicureans also experimentalists in any way? Did they influence the development of uh, experimental science? Because we've already talked about how they were observing nature. They were making observations about things they saw around them occurring in nature. But they were also interested in experimenting with them or not? Oh, absolutely. The, the early Royal Society has, uh, has both um, lots of records of casual naked eye observation and, um, and accounts of experiments. There's an there's a interesting connection between the history of microscopy and history of atomism. Um, as you can imagine, many early microscopists thought, oh, great, now we'll be able to actually see the atoms and see how they're interacting. And uh, figure out how to how to change um, change nature. This did not happen, even though some observers claimed they could see atoms right. of water and atoms of electricity, uh, but it wasn't really happening. Um, and if you think about it, there's kind of a paradox in the idea that you could see an individual atom. Uh, it would have to be colorless. Um, it would also have to uh, be itself emitting a film, but it can't do that. It's just a single atom. So um, a priori, you, you can't see atoms according to the classical Epicurean conception of what an atom is. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but yes. Of course, atomic chemistry. Atomic chemistry kind of disappeared for a while. Um, there were there were attempts actually to work out how how particles attracted and repelled each other in the 18th century, um, but um, this was not experimentally terribly well grounded, and um, it wasn't really until Dalton that people again started to think of the atom as a hard, round little ball that uh, could. Um, get stuck together with others of its kind or dissipate. Mm -hmm. So the biggest influence that the early scientists got from Epicureanism was mostly via uh, atomism, or were there other bits of Epicureanism that also influenced them? Yeah, um, 
atomism um, to, to which they added the idea of the laws of nature. Um, you don't find that notion in, in ancient philosophy. Uh, there's an interest in, in regularities, but the idea of um, especially uh, a quantitative law, like Galileo's law of falling bodies or Newton's law of attraction, um, those are completely foreign to, to ancient philosophy. So what you find in, in Descartes and um, people coming after Descartes who were influenced by him, like Newton, is this combination of atomic or corpuscularian theory with a conception of the laws of nature. So mm -hmm. instead of the atoms sort of um, just moving around either randomly or at will mm -hmm. or in some other not very clear way, the, uh, the particles are conceived as following, following laws. Mm -hmm. In some cases, laid down by God. That's a way to bring God into the atomistic picture. Mm -hmm. uh, just out of curiosity, did the scientists back then, uh, back then have access to Epicurean writings in Christian countries? Because, uh, I mean, I would imagine that as soon as the church... Uh, got in touch with what the Epicureans were saying and were writing about that it would have put their books immediately under the index of forbidden books or something like that that they had back then uh, and uh, it would have been somewhat difficult for people in uh, countries that were composed by a majority of Christians to have access to them so uh, was it the case that uh, the Protestants have any sort of influence uh, in promoting the Epicurean philosophy or not? Uh, yeah, that's a, a very complicated question because um, there wasn't any kind of censorship, outright censorship of um, what, what you could find of Epicurus's writings or of Lucretius's on the nature of things. Um, the main sources people used were, well, when it became available, Diogenes Laertius's History of Greek Philosophy. And there were some uh, English, um, English histories of philosophy that, uh, that, that took that as their basis. Um, once Lucretius was, was uh, um, once, once Lucretius's book was found again, which only happened in the 15th century, um, it was then translated into major European languages. Um, mm -hmm. uh, English translation in, I think, the um, 1680s, the first English translation, not censored, anybody could read it. Um, but uh, what you find is um, that whenever a, a philosopher is suspected of being an Epicurean, Yes, the clerical writers come down on that person pretty hard and repeated over and over, you find the accusation that the random concourse of atoms could never produce the world as we see it. It must come from a divine source. And that uh, human thought, um, human experience, human mentality could never just be the result of a material brain. There mm -hmm. must be a, a spirit inhabiting 
Sure, sure. So Epicureanism in general and the Epicurean philosophers, uh, as was the case, I guess, with most philosophers of their time, uh, 2000 years ago or so, uh, that, uh, I mean, what they were doing in terms of philosophy, they were not interested only in a single topic, like most philosophers are interested in nowadays, like, for example, some of them are interested in aesthetics or ethics or epistemology or metaphysics, but uh, they, they had a, an all-encompassing philosophy that maybe started with metaphysics at its basis, but then moved up to... Uh, what we could call maybe a philosophy of life, right? So they were also, um, in a sense, trying to advise people on how to best lead their lives and how to live a good life, because back then, particularly for the uh, Hellenistic philosophers, I guess that it was very important for them to try to arrive at the best way for you to live your life. So um, what did they say about that? Uh, yes, that's right. Um, the uh, All fields have, have uh, undergone tremendous specialization uh, through the evolution of knowledge. So if some philosopher today said, uh, I'm going to give you my theory of elementary physics to which I attach my political philosophy, aesthetics, uh, theory of morality, you would think that person was crazy. So uh, we don't do that anymore. We write articles and treatises and books on relatively restricted subjects, which we try to approach with uh, a lot of exactitude and, and finesse. Um, but uh, that was not what ancient philosophers did, as you say. They thought that they could comment on the whole range of human practice and experience and tie it all together. And so they necessarily did so uh, in a much sketchier way uh, than would be considered professionally respectable today, which is why there are many gaps and sometimes inconsistencies when we look at it with a, with a critical eye. Um, but that was, that was the aim, to tie ethics to physics, to um, one's general attitude towards life and death, other people, other animals, nature in general. And I think the Epicureans succeeded in doing that very well, perhaps better than any other ancient philosophical tradition did. Mm -hmm. But, uh, I mean, what did they derive from, for example, a materialist perspective on existence and on life, uh, to other realms of uh, human experience, like, for example, uh, so if we know that we are as material as any other thing, what sort of implications would that have to the way we live our lives? Okay. Um, well, let's let's maybe talk about ethics, then, then we can talk about personal life or something. Mm -hmm. So, about ethics. So, the idea is you realize that uh, there's no life to come, no heaven, no future reward for virtue. So what's your motivation for being ethical, telling the truth, not stealing, not betraying people? 
Um, it can only arise, <clears throat> they said, out of convention, an agreement that you don't want to be harmed by others, so you will not harm them. So in order to have a more harmonious and less troubled life, uh, you should be virtuous. That's your motive, not some re deferred reward for which you suffer now, but just a, a pleasant life in your community as it is. But you realize that since these are only conventions, um, they're not c divine commands. The laws of ethics are not divine commands. So all ethical conventions can change as conditions change. And it really, they just depend on human agreement about what will best serve the needs of the community. So were they really moral relativists in a sense? Yeah, in a, in a sense. Mm -hmm. so there will be some, some virtues that, uh, as the 18th century philosophers like Hume, who took this very seriously, um, agreed, um, there's some, some virtues that serve pretty well in all societies, like uh, uh, general honesty or general keeping to your, to your agreements. Um, but other, um, other conventions will change as people realize more about their situations or as their material conditions change. So um, if it hadn't, um, um, you can think of, of movements like vegetarianism. How did all these people in Western Europe suddenly decide that vegetarianism was the thing? Um, well, you know, a lot had to change. People had to right. learn more about the treatment of animals. They had to study the effects of farming on the on the environment, and then practices that uh, you could say were completely acceptable before uh, became unacceptable. Mm -hmm. I'm not a vegetarian. I'm a reducitarian, but I understand. <laughs> I understand the motives. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I, I, I've been I've been a vegan for four years. I'm no longer a vegan now, just because I had some uh, elf issues, you know. So it's very difficult to keep a strict vegan diet. But I, I mean the the ethics behind veganism and vegetarianism i guess that it's pretty solid because if there's if we take into account biological continuity particularly coming from evolutionary biology then i mean it's very hard for people to justify really harming other animals when at least when it's not necessary right Right. Yeah. I mean, I have, um, that's another whole subject, right? <laughs> and, and yeah. but um, yeah, but at least we, we should eat uh, less meat than people did a generation ago. So I mm -hmm. agree with that. Yeah, sure, sure. So uh, getting back in Epicureanism, uh, so we were, we were talking basically uh, how they derived their ethics from their materialist philosophy. Um, I mean, was it the case that because they thought that uh, the ways we thought about how we should interact and deal with other people, it was based mostly on social convention uh, and because 
they thought about perception in a sense that led them to conclude that we don't we are not really able to experience reality directly as it is but we only experience some sort of construction of it perhaps a useful construction of it that our brains create um i mean were they in any way uh, how did they deal with things like uh, for example uh, emotions uh, and moral values even i mean all the uh, the, uh, the entirety of the of our mental experiences to what extent did they take them seriously uh, and to what extent did they think that we should uh, take them into account when developing uh, an ethical system okay um well since they're since their their basic principle of ethics is reducing harm reducing mm -hmm. the harm you do to others and when you're thinking about care of the self the harm you do to yourself what's very real for them even though it's just an experience is pleasure and pain and so uh, that's why um like the notion of pleasure is so central in um, in what we think of as Epicureanism, um, and in fact, in, in their philosophy. So uh, what you are trying to do um, in the case of self-care is, is eliminate um, the, the major sources of harm to yourself, painful experiences um, that, that you would otherwise have. And that's where the difference to Stoicism comes in. So Stoics think, um, I think all the major ethical philosophies agree that um, life is a minefield. Right? There are going to be all sorts of problems that um, human beings face. Um, problems of um, health, sickness, physical pain, mental pain caused by the failure of your plans and loss of friendship, very important, um, uh, frustration of, of your ambitions. And the Stoic idea is um, these things are going to happen to you, but with the right mental preparation, you can fortify yourself against them so you're just not bothered. So um, they often become quite dramatic and eloquent on this subject. If your child dies, says Epictetus, you don't have to mourn. Epictetus says, um, uh, ask yourself, did I think children ever die? Right? It's just the natural course of nature. These things happen. You are not an exception. Um, but uh, if, you, if you are properly um, prepared and fortified and know that these things happen, say the Stoics, um, you won't be bothered. You will be Im implacable, Im not implacable. Um, uh, since I'm in Germany, I think of German words when I mean uh, English words. Uh, you <laughs> imperturbable is the word I want. Okay. And uh, in some in some cases, this is very beautifully expressed by Marcus Aurelius, for example. He's my favorite amongst the Stoics. In fact, the only one I really like. Um, but the Epicureans take a different tack on this. They say. Um, if you are in the grip of an emotion, you're 
you're not only helpless, but there's something um, really distasteful about the idea that you just become stony and don't give way to tears, don't grieve when your child dies. Um, instead, what you should do is try to prevent these things happening in the first place. So avoid situations in which um, you are setting yourself up for big shocks and anguish. And this takes a lot of um, analysis of human psychology and social affairs and, and how the world works. Um, but you can choose and avoid in such a way that you are um, relatively sheltered from these things happening. So you may not have as dramatic a life, um, but you will have a less painful life, they say. But some things will be painful anyway, and then let the emotions flow. Mm -hmm. So let me see if I understood it correctly. So uh, that, that first clash that we're talking about here between the Stoics and the Epicureans, is it about the Stoics thinking that uh, in this case, death shouldn't be at all a source of existential dread and the Epicureans uh, having an understanding of the reasons why uh, people take it as a source of that and why they mourn other people when they die uh, and why they get upset and sad and things like that. But... Uh, saying that perhaps they should, uh, in a way, prepare themselves for for that occurrence, for that thing that will inevitably happen. Was that the case? Was that the difference there? Yeah. Well, both Stoics and Epicureans recognize the inevitability of death. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not sure there's a consistent Stoic teaching about immortality, but for the Epicureans, there is a consistent teaching, which is death is the end. And they go to some lengths to try to persuade their followers that uh, death is not a bad thing. Um, first, they, they claim that it's not going to hurt very much. It's not going to be painful. Um, as I point out in, in my newer book, this is not exactly right. Uh, because a large number of people, especially those in, in somewhat disadvantaged circumstances, um, do have a lot of end-of-life pain. And this is something that um, medical associations are now taking very seriously. Um, people need access to hospice care, drugs, and, and an end to futile treatments that prolong a painful life. Uh, that's something that the Epicureans would certainly have said if they were, the ancient Epicureans, if, if they were around today, that uh, dying should be made less painful and end of life should be made less painful than it is under our current systems. Um, but uh, so they, uh, Epicureans try to persuade us that, that uh, dying will not be an unpleasant experience. Um, uh, just sort of like drifting off into a long-desired sleep. They're not exactly uh, persuasive about this. They say, um, Epicurus uh, said, where I am, death is not, and where death is, I am not. So um, you're not going to be having a bad experience being dead because you're not going to be having any experience at all. 
Mm-hmm. So lots of debate about how much the Epicureans really managed to remove the fear of death, existential existential dread. Um, but they, you know, they probably do as good a job as as can be done. And what Lucretius says is, um, if you live your life to the fullest mm-hmm. uh, and then have to exit it, um, you're not going to exit it thinking about all the all the things you missed. You should uh, you should take advantage of the world while it is there for you. Take full advantage of it. So uh, this emphasis on sensory pleasure, which is very important, comes into it in that way as well. Mm-hmm. So uh, were the Epicurean uh, the Epicureans also saying that we should try to avoid pain as much as possible were they saying that and if so if they were really saying that uh, could we say that they had an hedonistic philosophy uh, yes technically they are they are hedonists because uh, as epicurus says uh, pleasure is our first and only good but what he means by pleasure is not dissipation And what he means by pleasure is often just uh, avoidance of, of pain. So Epicurus says, well, we don't mean, from the male point of view, carousing with women and eating fish and getting drunk. That's not what pleasure really amounts to. It's um, pleasure certainly in, in food and drink, but also in friendship and music and knowledge and learning. And sex, um, Epicureans shocked their contemporaries by being very interested in sex. You don't find a lot of um, talk about that, at least not in a favorable way in Aristotle or Plato or the Stoics. So really quite an exception there. Um, I think for for Lucretius, um, the most painful emotion human beings can experience is jealousy sexual jealousy, that he considers to be absolute torture. And um, so he has uh, recommendations for how to get out, how to avoid jealous situations in the first place and what to do if you get caught. Uh, <laughs> interesting. So I recommend those, those sections. Um, Epicurus, uh, well, Lucretius seemed to think that love and marriage were on the whole pretty good pretty good things. Epicurus thought um, that was a lot of trouble and children were a lot of trouble. And while the philosopher could elect to have a family, um, uh, maybe maybe better not. That was his view. Mm-hmm. But did they say anything uh, as to, uh, did they think that life overall was worth living Or, or not? I mean, because uh, since they thought a lot about death and pain, uh, they could, in in a sense, be also uh, driven toward uh, antinatalism, for example. Was that the case? No, um, uh, no, I don't. I don't think so. Um, it's, it's purely um, the self-interest of the of the philosopher that Epicurus is thinking of. No, I think that they they have a very favorable attitude towards life as um, a source of pleasurable experiences for the most part, and and the acquisition of knowledge 
um, this is really an important theme for Epicurus. Learn about your world, try to explain the world, try to understand the world. And um, this and, and exchanges with friends and contemporaries, um, these are the main sources of pleasure in life, mm -hmm. along with the, the sensory pleasures. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, th there's that uh, small phrase from the Epicurean Scarpe Diem that I think that people nowadays really abuse of it a little bit because some of them try to use it in the sense of Oh, yeah, you should do whatever it pleases you in the moment and you shouldn't care about anything else. But was that really the original meaning? Was that what the Epicureans were trying to convey there? Or were they rather saying that, okay, you should uh, enjoy your sources of pleasure, but not really do whatever it pleases you in the moment and don't really care about the future and things like that. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, there, there's, um, uh, there is a kind of ambivalence there because yes, yeah, seize the day as, as Horace said, um, make the most of the day. Um, take advantage of what's out there for you to do and experience and feel. On the other hand, uh, be prudent, because um, if you don't think about limiting your pleasures, and there's a limit to how much pleasure you can experience and to how much ex pleasure you can experience without harming yourself or harming other people, um, you've got to think about that or, or you're in bad shape. So the idea is always is is to realize that um, that sort of behavior you were describing, do whatever you feel like doing at the moment, um, can be harmful to you or to others and will bring on more pain and suffering for you or others in, in the longer run. So you submit to some inconveniences and some limitations now in order to be better off in the future. And they emphasize that very, very, very clearly. Mm -hmm. So were they all, were they also worried about uh, addiction and things like that? For example, if you drank too much wine, perhaps that's bad for you because you get addicted to it, and then you have to to drink more and more and more over time to get the same amount of pleasure out of it, and even uh, I mean any other sort of addictive behavior like sex and things like that. Were they worried about? people experiencing too much pleasure at once uh, and then getting addicted to it. Yeah, I don't, I don't think they discuss um, addiction specifically, but if you had presented those examples to them, they would, they would certainly have, have agreed. Mm -hmm. so, uh, so in my, in my little book, I say, again, trying to play both sides of this, um, it might be okay to have too many drinks at a party because you're having such a great time. But you don't want to have too many drinks at a party every night, because as okay. you say, this is going to lead to, to bad results. So you don't always have to be on a diet, not drinking, exercising, punishing yourself. Sometimes just enjoy the things that are there, but do think about the long-term effects. That's their, their message. Mm-hmm. 
So uh, just to get uh, to get back to the conflict between the Epicureanists and the Stoicists, uh, the Stoics. Um, I mean, uh, what were the main differences there in terms of how they approached life? The Stoics are, um, they think in terms of hierarchies, as did most ancient philosophers. Um, gods at the top, human beings in the middle, other animals down at the, down at the bottom. Um, and... Uh, that the way they think of, of causality and, and ethics really reflects that. Um, in both Plato and the Stoics, um, the ethical person is sort of oriented upwards towards the divine or towards um, absolute concepts of right and justice. And humans occupy this sort of inferior position with respect to the gods, but superior with respect to the, the other animals. And Epicureans see all this a bit differently um, because, of course, they don't have the gods up there. Um, and their relation to animals is also quite different because even though they recognize that humans um, can do things other animals can't do. Um, they really like to stress the continuity between humans and other animals, you know, that we all care for our offspring, um, we all uh, feel enlivened in the springtime, uh, we're, all, we're all part of nature, animals feel and experience and life histories just, just as we do. But they do think that there is something um, quite admirable about human beings, namely their inventiveness, that humans are creative. Um, they have invented all sorts of practices like weaving and architecture and poetry and, and uh, all kinds of art. And the other animals haven't done this. So it's not that humans are sort of um, superior in being closer to the divine or even more rational. You know, a lot of Epicureans don't put a lot of emphasis on that. Um, but on, on this ability to create beauty and create um, things that are interesting and ingenious and to understand the world, that's where their superiority to the other animals lies. Uh, in 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 what way do you think uh, Stoics and uh, the Epicureans fought about uh, gods perhaps intervening uh, or being interested in human uh, in human affairs? Was uh, there any difference there, or uh, because you referred earlier to the fact that the Stoics believed in a sort of uh, hierarchical structure to existence with gods at the top and uh, Epicureans didn't really believe in that. So was that another source of, uh, conf or of philosophical conflict there or not? Yeah. Well, I don't think Stoics have a very uh, interventionistic picture of, of, uh, of the gods. There's... Um, mm -hmm. Providence, which has arranged things from the beginning so that uh, the world runs as it's going to run. The interventionistic God is really a Judeo-Christian uh, 
Islamic, perhaps, construction. Um, you don't really find that in ancient philosophy. Ancient philosophy is, is kind of opposed to any mythological characterization of the gods as getting mixed up in human affairs. They think all oh, that is just fairy tales and stories and things. Um, so it's no big difference, I would say, between Epicureans and Stoics there. Um, but where the difference comes in is that um, Epicureans don't think of human beings as something like lesser gods with reason placed way above the other animals, um, closer to the gods in their overall abilities and, and um, orientation. For Epicureans, humans are superior in a way to animals um, because they can invent and create and understand the world, but they're still very much part of living nature. So there's no... Um, Stoics, I think, tend to make invidious comparisons between humans and animals and criticize the Epicureans on the grounds that they treat humans like animals. Animals go after pleasure. Animals dislike pain. Animals are irrational. Um, where the Epicureans think, that's right. Um, all animals, including humans, uh, pursue pleasure as well they should. Mm -hmm. Okay, so per perhaps just one last question. Uh, do you think that uh, if the original Epicureans were alive today because they were so interested in uh, avoiding pain and pursuing pleasure that they would be utilitarians? Um, the utilitarian tradition, the real one, did actually draw on the Epicureans. Um, John Stuart Mill... Right, uh, Jeremy Bentham, uh, that's historically established. And um, yes, a lot of the contemporary political analysis, uh, we also mentioned uh, Marx and Engels earlier, um, did, did draw on the, on the Epicureans. So um, if they were alive today, uh, yes, I think they would be um, in favor of many political reforms. And um, many of them would certainly take a more utilitarian direction. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. So, Dr. Wilson, it was again a great pleasure to have you on the show. Uh, just before we go, would you like again to make reference to your uh, upcoming book and also perhaps to other sources on the internet where people can get in touch with your work? Oh, sure. Um, yes, so the book I mentioned that came out uh, beginning of beginning of May, I think, um, is called uh, The Pleasure Principle, mm -hmm. and um, uh, published in the UK. And it will be coming out with a different co cover and a different title in the US as How to Be an Epicurean um, from uh, this fall from, from basic books. So uh, one of those you can already get. The other one, same words, uh, but not available yet. And um, there are many excellent uh, excellent online sources for Epicureanism in general. And um, you can probably find copies of some of the things I've written on uh, various websites if you just Google Google my name. Um, and of course, if you send me an email, I'm happy to send you any texts I happen to have around. Okay, great. So uh, thank you again for coming on the show. And it was a very interesting conversation. So.
Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Hi there, thank you for coming to my channel and for watching this interview until the end. As you might have noticed, I've been putting out regular interviews with academics and intellectuals from a variety of fields. So to keep the channel sustainable, I would like to ask you to please visit my Patreon page and to consider making a pledge there. Uh, otherwise, I also have a PayPal and Subscribestar. And if you like what I'm doing, please share it, leave a like and hit the subscription button. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my patrons, Karen Litzke, Anne Blanchett, Perelga Larsen, Lau Guerrero, Chantel Gelinas, Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunda, Brian Rivera, Lucas Stafiniak, Sergio Condriano, Iane Henninen, Ricardo Vladimiro, and Dr. Jerry Muller, Herbert Gintis, and Ruth Gervoz, and also my three producers, Isar Webb, Rosie, and Jim Frank. Thank you for all.